Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday, another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. In a recent episode, I was talking about some material from True Crime Talk Radio, and I wanted to expand upon that in today's episode. To give this one a proper introduction, I need to go back to 2019 and share some observations that I made along the way with Black Box Online Radio, and that was when this channel began to make somewhat of a pivot, going from talking about unsolved cases, and I would just sit by the recorder and say, okay, here's what I think happened in these unsolved mysteries, whether it's the Zodiac Killer, or the disappearance of Maura Murray, the disappearance of Brandon Lawson, the murder of Missy Beavers, I would just say my theory, like, looking at some very basic pieces of evidence, okay, here's what I think about it. And then I realized that watching seven or eight YouTube videos and then making a response about, okay, here's how I think I can solve a murder mystery or a missing persons case is not practical. And in 2019, I noticed that the channel was definitely focused more on true crime psychology as well as making observations about human behavior as opposed to simply trying to identify a murderer who has not been caught or to find out the location of a missing person. And I was really focused on listening to true crime programs and watching true crime TV because I made it a habit. I called it a form of mental exercise. Once a day, follow a true crime program, whether it's a podcast, a documentary, an extended YouTube episode. I was like, once a day, I need some type of true crime program. Because I found that as I was doing Black Box Online Radio, all of the true crime cases could intersect in some way. I mean, that was something that I said back at the time. Everything in life is interlocking these ideas. No matter what idea you have, it's not going to be some type of standalone abstract thing in a bubble. They connect to different ideas. And I found that there were a lot of commonalities among the true crime cases out there. And one in particular was true crime psychology, just learning about all the different aspects of the cases. Because after 2019, like in the early parts of 2020, I started learning more about Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and other famous psychologists. And I think that also affected the way that I thought about the channel. Also, I started reading more about neuroscience and how the brain functions. So that affected my thinking in a lot of ways. And I don't regret doing that, but I think the observations that I made watching true crime programs and just listening to podcasts and looking at all the intersectionality, if I'm using that word correctly, really came together. Because this is something that I really need to share with you to introduce today's topic. I talk a lot about the show Meet Mary Murder, which is available on the 2B streaming service, and it's hosted by Michelle Trachtenberg. And it talks all about how people get murdered by their spouses. It, wanted, it wants to focus in on that. In one of the episodes, it's actually um, one of the later ones in their first season. I hope they do a second one. But they talked about some statistics. And I said this in a recent episode, but I will restate them for a very important reason. And that is that 38% of women who are murdered are murdered by their partner. And 6% of men who are murdered 
are murdered by their partner, referring to an intimate partner. And Daniel Webster, in the comments section, giving a shout-out to him, responded by saying that he is not a scientist, but he wanted to make somewhat of a dispute on those statistics that 38% of women are murdered by their partner. He said that he had heard somewhere that 75% of women who are murdered are murdered by either a husband, a boyfriend, or an ex-husband, or an ex-boyfriend. And whether or not you go and you find some source that supports either one of those statements, I wanted to bring that up because both of those could be true. This goes to show you that um, statistics have a lot of overlap, or there is a lot of ambiguity, or... I mean, two things can be true. They don't necessarily contradict each other, because the things that I heard on Meet Mary Murder, which was shared by um, an investigator in one of the cases about how 38% of women who are murdered are murdered by their partner at face value. That does not include ex-boyfriends or ex-husbands, ex-spouses, and what uh, Daniel Webster had shared about the 75% of women who are murdered, that included ex-boyfriends, ex-husbands, and ex-spouses, like all of the ex-intimate partners. So, this is how things come together. But there's a final part to that statistic about how 38% of women who are murdered are murdered by their intimate partner. And that is that if you can imagine in your brain 38% in a pie chart, just like look at the pie chart which the slice, the piece of that pie chart, visualize it now, what color is it, see it in your imagination... 68% of those women are murdered when they try to leave. Because they, they were even saying this on Meet Murray Murder. People always ask the question, well, if this woman is with an abusive husband or an abusive boyfriend or an abusive lover, why doesn't she just leave? Well, a big reason is she's probably absolutely terrified and he just has so much control over him she feels some sense of attachment. But also she's afraid that he's going to do something very dangerous because... 68% of women who are murdered by their partner are done so when she tries to leave. And that brings us to today's subject, because I was talking about how I found a copy recently of um, The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer, and it was a miniseries that was made in 1999, and the full version is available on the channel MFC Sports Crime. And if you ever do want to watch this, The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer, it is... Um, two hours and 51 minutes long. There are some fragments of it that have been shared on other YouTube channels, but the entirety of it is available on MFC Sports Crime. Now, sometimes they put these things up, they take these things down. YouTube is the way it is. I started getting more reacquainted with the story of Ira Einhorn and Holly Maddox because I was actually out at the library working on my next book, I try to do a lot of writing in the library. It's the only place where I can focus. And I was walking through the um, aisles, and I saw this one book on the shelf that was talking about conspiracy theories, and that always gets my attention. I have even said in the past that the absolute most fascinating subject in the world is conspiracy theory science. So I picked up this book on conspiracy theories, and I read just two chapters of it while I was waiting, and I found one about William Cooper, Bill Cooper, the guy who wrote Behold Pale Horse, and he hosted The Hour of the Time. Um, actually, a very big influence on Alex Jones, the radio host. 
William Cooper was his predecessor, more or less. And at some point, I hope to do an episode on the death of William Cooper, but I saw a very particular name in that conspiracy theory book, and there was a chapter dedicated to Ira Einhorn. And I recognized the name, of course, because I had learned about Ira Einhorn as a kid watching America's Most Wanted. I became so acquainted with the true crime world watching America's Most Wanted, whether it was the Zodiac Killer, the Unicorn Killer, whom we're going to be discussing today, and all types of... um shootings, or people who commit very, very serious white-collar crimes, and they just go on the run. And I used to watch this on Saturday nights. The cops would come on at, um, I guess, 8 o'clock, and there would be 8, at 8.30, there would be episodes of Cops, and then America's Most Wanted would come on at 9. And I learned about the true crime world. That way, I grew up learning about unsolved cases, and I think a lot of us do. But there was one that they did, and it was on this guy, Ira Einhorn, and the story of how he murdered a woman named Holly Maddox, and then he fled the country. What I didn't comprehend at the time was that Ira Einhorn is rumored to have been one of the co-founders of Earth Day. However, if you actually do even the slightest bit of reading up on the subject, other people who are involved with the founding of Earth Day dispute this and saying something to the effect of he wasn't actually that influential on the creation of Earth Day. It's just media hype and blown out of proportion, but he was definitely accused and went on the run for committing the murder of a woman named Holly Maddox. And this was heavily um, detailed in the uh, miniseries The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer, which is based on the book The Unicorn Secrets. And I actually searched for it by putting in Secrets of the Unicorn, and that brought me to the Tintin comics. That definitely was perhaps paying homage to the Tintin series, or Tintin, as somebody once told me it's pronounced in French. They have a one called The Secrets of the Unicorn. But yes, there's a book about Ira Einhorn called The Unicorn Secrets, and the hunt for the unicorn killer wanted to show that there's this guy, Ira Einhorn, who is becoming somewhat of a very well-established political advisor, spiritual guru, a member of the 1960s counterculture. He is involved with protests and demonstrations. But the hunt for the unicorn killer also wanted to show that he cooperated with the police and law enforcement because these protests and demonstrations could get out of control. And because he was such an influential member, people listened when he was talking he had a lot of control over the masses, and he became somewhat of a valuable, I'm tempted to say informant, but not really an informant, more just like a participant in calming down some of the group demonstrations of the 1960s. But I was really quite surprised when I saw his name in a book about conspiracy theories, because, all right, he is involved with the 1960s counterculture, he was he was accused of the murder of Holly Maddox, and he fled the country for a while, but where really is the conspiracy theory? This comes from some stuff that happens after the 1960s protest. As I said, he's becoming an influential person at in many different circles, and even to the point where he can be a political advisor, where he can become somewhat of a spiritual guru to 
high-ranking individuals all across the, spec the spectrum, whether it's in the private sector, maybe some people who even have ties to the government. So he was very critical of the CIA and the Department of Defense. And even in the Hunt for the Unicorn Killer, they talk about how it's like we cannot downplay the role of the Department of, of Defense. A lot of people are being critical of the CIA. They say that the CIA is up to no good, whether it's Operation Mockingbird, Operation Terrify America, let alone doing experiments on people, MKUltra, so to speak. Yes, that's heavily reported, but he, will, he also wanted to say that the Department of Defense is doing some very similar yet heinous things. And he just thought this was the reason why people would want to take him out. And one way to downplay his very outspoken behaviors and outspoken dialogue is to frame him for a murder. But they showed that Ira Einhorn has developed a relationship with a woman named Holly Maddox. She's played by Naomi Watts in The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer. And at first... He ca he is captivated by her presence. He approaches her. He goes on to um, develop a relationship with her. They become intimate partners. She came from a somewhat of a strict upbringing. However, they did want to specify that um, the family, her father, was much um, more easy going with the younger siblings as opposed to um, when he was raising Holly Maddox. The well, I'll save some of that stuff for later. But that's just it. They're in an intimate relationship, and very gradually he becomes more and more controlling. And so many people only see him as this guy, Ira Einhorn. He is a lecturer. He is someone talking about political ideas. He is someone who's talking about spiritual ideas. They don't think that he has a violent bone in his body, but behind the scenes, he is actually developing a lot of destructive and controlling tendencies. When I was reading up on this case and watching The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer, and there's also a uh, documentary on the Film Rise channel called Mugshots, Ira Einhorn, the Unicorn, if anyone wants to investigate a little bit more and watch some other material, I was reminded of something that Dr. Todd Grande had said about Charles Manson when he stated that he wasn't charismatic, just very confident. And I'm quite curious if the same thing would apply to Ira Einhorn. But I also noticed that there was an article out there from Esquire magazine which said the Earth Day co-founder who would go on to be a world-famous killer. They describe him as a charismatic hippie madman. Ira Einhorn evaded authorities for nearly 20 years. A reporter found him just before he was returned to the United States and to stand trial for a brutal murder. But I'm just really quite curious about that. Was he genuinely charismatic? And if you ever do watch The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer, the guy playing Ira Einhorn is named Kevin Anderson. And I thought that he was so much more likable, warm, and personable than the real-life Ira Einhorn, whom you can see on film, and you can see interviews with him, and just even looking at his photos, I think the, um, I think the actor had a little bit of natural likability, but there's something that is just very captivating about Ira Einhorn. He has this unusual name, and I had seen the program on America's Most Wanted. I'm pretty sure they did multiple episodes about him, or they just did like a segment on multiple episodes, rather. 
growing up, and then in 1999, they released The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer as a miniseries, and I saw a preview for that, and because I was familiar with watching Ira Einhorn on America's Most Wanted, I was talking about it with a classmate, and I said, hey, did you hear about that new show they're doing called The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer? And he's like, Unicorn Killer? I'm like, yeah, it's based on a true story. And he's like, well, if he's called The Unicorn Killer... Maybe he murdered somebody with a spike. Maybe he murdered someone with a spike that was all twisted, and that's why they're calling him the Unicorn Killer. And I said, well, I think it's because his name is Ira Einhorn. And then the person I was talking to didn't even hear a word I was saying, and he's just going on with that. Yeah, maybe it was a spike that was real twisted, and it looked like a unicorn's horn, and that's why they're calling him the Unicorn Killer. And I said again... I think they're calling him that because his last name is Einhorn. And you could see, though, looking back, like in retrospect, even without knowing who this guy was, somebody is already attributing this type of mystical presence to Ira Einhorn, or he's projecting his own story onto him because he has some type of preconceived idea about the way that he should be or about what could possibly be going on. And I think that happened very frequently with Ira Einhorn. Einhorn, of course, means unicorn in German. I certainly did not know that in 1999. Um, I must have been in the fifth grade at the time. That's just what, what I'm guessing because of the year. I mean, I didn't I was definitely talking to somebody in elementary school about this. I grew up watching true crime stuff, and absolutely no one else in my elementary school did. Or if they did, they didn't want to talk about it. I think people who watch true crime as kids don't really interact in a very social way. Yeah, okay, let's not do that pathway right now. But back to the case, it's just that people are projecting their own ideas on him. They think that there is something that is just very alluring when they learn that his last name means unicorn, and they just have to project their own story onto the situation. Okay, so Ira Einhorn and Holly Maddox are in this relationship, and he's becoming more and more abusive, he's becoming more and more controlling, he's trying to get her away from her family, he's trying to tell her what to do, he's becoming physically abusive, and a lot of people don't believe it because... He's a spiritual guru, an advisor to people, and they they said this numerous times that she was afraid to talk more to people about these activities that he was doing, or sorry, the abuses that he was doing and committing toward her because he had so many powerful connections and that he was on good terms with very wealthy people, on good terms with very powerful people, and then he just became more and more controlling. However, Holly Maddox ultimately reached a breaking point, and she decided to leave. She's like, it's done. She leaves the relationship, then he pulls her back into the relationship, then she leaves the relationship again. For good this time, absolutely for good, she's done with this guy, Ira Einhorn, public speaker, he's an author, he's an advisor, he's even some type of borderline spiritual guru. She's done with him. She doesn't care. She wants to move on with her life. However, she finds out where she is, and then they start talking on the phone, and she makes an arrangement with him that she's going to come over and collect her things, collect her belongings out of his home, going back to get her stuff. 
And just as I was watching The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer, I was like, please don't go alone. I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen because, I mean, obviously you can even see from the title of this episode what's going to happen. But I was just like, I was just hoping that uh, Holly Maddox would not go back by herself to uh, collect her things with some guy who had been abusing her. And I would hope that any person in that situation, male or female, would would do that, would go back with um, someone or even a group of people. So she goes back to collect her belongings, and she is never seen alive again. And then a search is underway for Holly Maddox, and they simply can't find her. And the long story short is that she was locked in a trunk in Ira Einhorn's apartment and the neighbors below had been complaining about oh, some type of bizarre smell in the building and they thought a stain was about to form on the ceiling and it began to get worse and worse and i believe it's over a year after holly maddox disappeared that they actually found her remains and she had been locked in that trunk for a very extended period of time and that the process of decomposition had just gone into overdrive because not only was her was her body left in some type of unpreserved manner but locked in a trunk which was then locked in inside of a storage room but they found her body and it was determined that she died as a result of blunt force trauma and the medical examiner could not determine how many times she had been struck in the head with a large blunt object because of just that. The fractures in her skull were so large, maybe 10 or 11 or 12 blows to the head. And they also um, explored the concept of alternative theories in the hunt for the unicorn killer. And they pointed out how some people were like, okay, okay, I think I know what happened. It goes back to the conspiracy theory angle. Holly probably fell and hit her head on something in the bathroom, and she died instantly. And then Ira Einhorn panicked, so he had her body in a trunk, and he put her there because he thought that the authorities wouldn't believe him. He thought that the CIA and the Department of Justice would, Department of Defense rather, would, no, not the Department of Justice yet, the Department of Defense would use this as an opportunity to frame him for a murder, so he hid her body in a trunk and then locked it in a small storage room but the, but they brought up very clearly how that would almost certainly be impossible an alternative theory like that, that this was a type of accidental death if she had been bludgeoned in the head 10 to 12 times with very all these large skull fractures the medical examiner couldn't even determine how many of them the alternative um, theories out there are, that this was just simply uh simple accident and somebody panicked did not hold up but there's a very interesting scene in the hunt for the unicorn killer if you ever do want to watch the full miniseries where um once again the actor playing ira einhorn kevin anderson says that okay he's talking to a group of college students and he's like i've been put on trial like i'm being accused of this horrible crime but maybe some people think i'm an intelligent person why would I do this to someone that I loved? And not only that, being an intelligent person, why would I keep her body in a trunk when I could go to a hardware store and buy a bag of lime that would cover up the smell and that would not produce that stain? 
why would I allow this to happen in some type of unpreserved, very, very detectable way? Why would I do that? And I was really just thinking about that. I know it was a dramatic recreation, a dramatization, if you will, but I was wondering that exact same thing. Like, why on earth did this guy, Ira Einhorn, the real Ira Einhorn, that is, why did he allow this to happen? And throughout the whole time I was getting back into this material, I was just thinking that if he had only disposed of her remains in a more a more secluded area or an area where she most likely would not have been found, like, I mean, how about driving into the wilderness like some people and discarding her remains there? He may have gotten away with it because she went back to collect her belongings, right? So he's just telling you, oh yeah, she came back, and then, um, yeah, she left about three days ago, she left about four days ago, and then goes on and on and on, and I mean, all they have is his word on that. They can't, if they can't find out where she is, something else could have happened to her. I don't know how anybody would have been able to convict him on that, but this was a clear case of habeas corpus, because her body turned up in his home, in a locked area, like the um, storage room that's locked, and then there's this trunk where her remains were, were were located. And I was just wondering, like that, why did he allow this to happen? In the theory that the prosecutors came up with was that he is someone who is a writer, he's someone who is a political advisor, public speaker, lecturer. He is very well recognized for his intellect and his intelligence. And it was just that. He thought that he was so intelligent and powerful that he could keep her body locked in his apartment and no one would find her. It was meant to add insult to injury in an egotistical, egocentric, ego-tripping kind of way. And it was he just wanted to prove that he could control her to the point where he could murder her keep her remains in his presence, and no one would ever figure it out. He thought that he was above the law in that respect, and I think that this ties into the dark triad traits. I often use a graphic on this channel on Black Box Online Radio about um, the dark triad, narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Let's focus in on Machiavellianism right now, because it's not completely in line with Niccolo Machiavelli and the Prince and some of the writings from the um, middle part of the second millennium talking about the foundation of the modern state. But when they use Machiavellianism in the dark triad sense, it is more about how somebody thinks that they are either superior or more intelligent than the rest of society, so they don't have to follow the rules and laws and boundaries of society. They can weave their way around them. They can make twists and turns in the legal system, in the moral and ethical codes, and it's just that, because they think that they are superior in some way. It is very frequently tied to um, intelligence. They think that I'm so intelligent I can make up my own set of principles, or I don't have to follow the laws and principles of the ordinary person. And yes, this guy Ira Einhorn seems like he's absolutely in that, in that uh, book. And to help us out with these subsequent events, I'm going to go over to Murderpedia, which I thought had a very well-documented, point-by-point discussion on Ira Einhorn and the murder of Holly Maddox. 
Iris Samuel Einhorn was born on May 15th of 1940. He was an activist in the 1960s and 70s, and he ended up committing the murder of Holly Maddox in 1977. Ira Einhorn was active in ecological and anti-war groups in the 1960s. At one time, he was a friend and contemporary of Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. And Abby Hoffman has made one appearance on this channel when I did the episode The Crimes of Grace Slick, talking about the singer of Jefferson Airplane, but perhaps he has been more famous in a resurfacing since the movie The Trial of the Chicago Seven, and Abby Hoffman was played by Sasha Baron Cohen. Ira Einhorn also claimed to have been instrumental in creating Earth Day in the 1970s and participated in the Earth Day rally in Philadelphia that year, that year meaning 1970. However, other organizers of Earth Day dispute this account. He was known as the Unicorn because his last name, Einhorn, is the German word for unicorn. I really don't think there is any type of um, connection larger than that, but remember what I said about how somebody wanted to just immediately create their own story, just learning about his um, name and this unicorn connection. Ira Einhorn studied in Pennsylvania and had a five-year relationship with Holly Maddox, who was from Tyler, Texas, and she graduated from Bryn Mawr College in suburban Philadelphia in 1977. Maddox broke up with Einhorn. She went to New York and became involved with a man named Saul Lapidus. When Einhorn found out about this, he angrily called Maddox to come back to Philadelphia, which she did on September 9th of that year. And that's in uh, 77, but... Oh, sorry, no, that was uh, not in 77, but... um. She uh, came back and to collect her belongings, as I said, uh, 1977 was when she graduated, excuse me. Holly Maddox was never seen in public again. When questioned about this, Einhorn stated to the police that she left to make a call and never came back. His alibi began to crack, however, when neighbors began to complain about a foul smell coming from his apartment. Eighteen months later, Holly Maddox's decomposing corpse was found by the police in a trunk stored in Ira Einhorn's apartment in a closet. Einhorn's bail was set at $40,000 at the request of his attorney, who was actually Arlen Specter at the time, the same Arlen Specter from the Kennedy assassination and the who would go on to become a less-than-desirable politician. Ira Einhorn was released from custody after paying 10% of the bond's value, or $4,000. The bill was paid not by Einhorn, but by Barbara Bronfman, a Montreal Canadian so socialite, and they actually owned the world's largest distillery, and um, the Bronfman family is connected to the Seagram's alcoholic label. That is um, how they made their fortune. In 1981, days before his murder trial was to begin, Einhorn evaded bail and escaped to Europe. Einhorn traveled in Europe for the next 16 years along the way, marrying a person named Annika Floden back in Pennsylvania. The state convicted him in absentia in 1993 for the murder of Holly Maddox. Einhorn was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But at this time, he's not in the United States of America, in absentia. He was in Europe, and this is why they were talking about him on America's Most Wanted when I was a kid, because they were saying, this guy, Ira Einhorn, is almost certainly guilty of the murder of Holly Maddox, and he maintained his innocence throughout all of it, saying that's just that, that the CIA is against me, the Department of Defense is against me, and um, turns out he would actually meet up with the Department of Justice. That's why I was thinking about them, but... They were just asking that question on America's Most Wanted. 
why is this guy, Ira Einhorn, allowed to live legally in France? And he had not only been accused of the murder of Holly Maddox, you just heard there in 1993 he was convicted in abstentia. Convicted of it. And this brought up a very large legal battle, because whenever you deal with extradition and foreign governments, it becomes rather difficult, because they these governments have different laws. In 1997, Einhorn was tracked down and arrested in Champagne-Mouton, France, excuse me, where he had been living under the name Eugene Ballon. The extradition process, however, proved to be more complex than originally envisioned, and it pitted one against another because of the different interpretations the French have again in, in terms of the right to a fair trial. Under the extradition treaty between France and the United States, either country may refuse extradition if it finds that the defendant may not get a fair trial. Einhorn's defense, among whom the Human Rights League, argued that Einhorn would have to face the death penalty if he returned to the United States, and France had abolished the death penalty. We saw something very similar with um, the case of Charles Ng, one of the Boneyard killers, when he went into Canada to escape um, the, uh, well, to escape prosecution, and they're saying that, hey, the United States has the death penalty, we're not going to send him back because we don't want to extradite to any country that has the death penalty. This happens all the time. But, um, the Pennsylvania authorities pointed out that the date of the murder occurred when Pennsylvania did not have the death penalty. A second issue soon arose. France law and the European Court of Human Rights required a new trial when the defendant was sentenced in absentia, hence was unable to present his own defense on the basis the Court of Appeals of Bordeaux rejected the extradition request. As I said, he was able to live in France freely for a very long time. The court's decision infuriated many in the U.S. when it came to view, be viewed as political posturing from France's government. Um, I think that it's more just about the intersections of the legal systems, and this stuff happens all the time. And let's not kid ourselves, lawyers are only trying to win the case, and they're going to use everything in their arsenal sometimes. Thirty-five members of Congress sent a letter to President Jacques Chirac of France asking for Einhorn's extradition under France's separation of powers. The president cannot give order to the courts and does not intervene in extradition affairs. As a consequence of this refusal, in order to secure the extradition of Ira Einhorn, the Pennsylvania legislature passed a bill in 1998 nicknamed the Einhorn Law, which allowed in absentia defendants to request another trial. But um, the long story short is they were ultimately able to, to extradite him because of the Prime Minister Lionel Jospin, and he um, said because of the sensitive nature of the case, Jospin took some time to reach a decision and eventually issued an extradition decree. So Ira Einhorn was granted a new trial. He took the stand in his own defense, maintained his innocence throughout the whole thing, but he was convicted of it, and he spent the rest of his life in prison, which I believe is about 17 years behind bars, and he passed away just in 2020, but he always said that the CIA was against him, the Department of Defense was against him, and from a very early on time, or from a very early time, 
it would appear that he was very guilty. But we have to remember, people are innocent until proven guilty, yet he was convicted of this, and he had a first trial, and then convicted in absentia, a second trial, found guilty. I think almost certainly that he did it. An abusive ex-boyfriend who, it's really not only that he was an ex-boyfriend, this is really about the time when the woman is trying to leave. Because I think that in his mind, he hadn't quite broken up with Holly Maddox yet. He hadn't ended the relationship, and he didn't think that it was over. He still thinks that she's trying to leave. So it's like that 68% of 38% about how a large portion of women who are murdered are murdered by their intimate partner when they try to leave. I think all of these elements came to play. A big thank you to Murderpedia. A big thank you to The Hunt for the Unicorn Killer, Esquire Magazine, and The Unicorn Secrets, Filmrise Media. There are lots of sources out there about Ira Einhorn. And I also began to wonder about why were people putting so much faith in this guy? And I think that it is a little, it's much more complicated than it seems about how somebody can become a spiritual guru in the first place. Because I was watching a similar style program where someone is being a spiritual guru on YouTube and it was, I think it was either the MWAWTV or Coffee with Chris. It's both hosted by the same guy. Just one was the um, older show and one was the newer one. But it was from the Marvelous Work and a Wonder group hosted by Christopher Namelka doing one of their programs. And he said, you cannot do what I do. Try it. Get up here and try to do what I do. Meaning you try to be a spiritual guru. People will not listen to you. And... I'm really not sure the exact reason why some people give off this effect where they can become either some type of cult leader or some type of advisor to the politicians. Because with Ira Einhorn, it doesn't quite appear to me that he is a cult leader. Instead, he is putting very influential people under his spell and he's becoming a confidant of rich and powerful people who like what he has to say. Well, how how does that happen? Is it just charisma? I'm not even sure he was charismatic. Is it just confidence that he is someone who is just very confident in what he's saying? And part of me was just believing that it is someone who has conquered certain types of mental barriers. Because with Charles Manson, um, I actually heard this on Stephanie Harlow's channel. She was talking about how he had experienced something very humiliating as a kid where his um, uncle forced him to wear one of his mother's dresses at home and then the next day he forced him to go to school wearing the dress and then everybody was laughing at him all day long in school and it was just a very humiliating experience and I was reminded of a book that we are at I think it might actually have also been in the fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade, probably the fourth grade come to think, but whenever. It's called How to Be a Perfect Person in Just Three Days. And the kid in that book doesn't have to wear a dress to school, which sounds painfully humiliating. Instead, he had to wear this piece of broccoli around his neck because you might think that's really weird. Yeah, that's the whole point. 
It's about conquering humiliation. And I think that maybe some people, whether it's Einhorn, Charles Manson, Jim Jones, the People's Temple, I think that maybe they had learned how to surpass certain types of mental barriers. And yes, confidence, charisma, but also when people challenge them, they don't show any signs of wavering. They have conquered the concept of humiliation, like no matter what you say to them, they will not be humiliated by by insults or put downs or by clever wordplay. They will just be they will just look at it as writing on water and they will keep going. So I think that's what um could have possibly been happening with Ira Einhorn. That he's someone who's talking about lots of ideas. He's talking about all of these things like peace, love, and joy, as well as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This is why people didn't like the hippies, by the way, because, oh, uh, yeah, you are, you, you're talking about Earth Day, you want to save the planet, yet at the same time, you're filled with murderous tendencies. That's why people uh, were... Well, that, and I don't mean that lightly. I know it sounded kind of silly saying it out loud, but there were people who were genuinely opposed to the hippie movement because they thought that these people are talking about Earth, love, and peace, love, and joy, and the sex, drugs, rock and roll part of it, but they're like, that is just material selfishness. You aren't for peace, love, and joy. You're just doing this because you think it's cool. You're just conforming to being a nonconformist. All you care about is yourself. All you care about are yourselves. And that's what they thought it was. And uh, one of the antidotes to this in, the, in California in 1966 was the Church of Satan. That's why many people turned toward that, because there was the counterculture to a counterculture. There was a way of standing up to this movement that they thought had been hijacked by material selfishness. But with Einhorn, he is operating in the 1960s, he is operating in the 1970s, and you heard that there, though, that he didn't truly face trial for this until the early 1980s. Yet he still had supporters, and as I said, I don't believe he was a cult leader. Instead, he is someone who became somewhat of a cult-like advisor to other people. And he also seems to me, and this is just totally my outsider impression of him, as someone who was obsessed with power, control. Maybe he had learned how to surpass certain mental barriers, but I think that he didn't want to deal with humiliation and, more importantly, rejection. I completely believe that he did it. I don't think there was any conspiracy against him, and maybe the prosecution was right when they said that he just wanted to prove that he was smarter than everybody else, or that he could add some type of insult to injury by keeping her body locked in the closet inside of a trunk, that he was going to get away with it, even without destroying evidence. And also the concept of now she can't leave. I know that it's horribly, horribly morbid and sickening, but that's what I think happened. What do you have to say about Ira Einhorn and the story of Holly Maddox? Um, do you have any comments that you would like to share in the section down below? And as always, you can like, subscribe, follow the show on Instagram, BlackboxNet88, Facebook, BlackboxOnline Radio. My personal Facebook is also in the description box, Teespring page. Feel free to buy some t-shirts. Being weird is not a crime. And Amazon.com has my book, Killer on a White Horse, A Story of the Evening Watchman. 
which was inspired by the Zodiac Manson connection. All right, that's all for me now. I will see you on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.